0: Previously on BETA.
1: You're the only one with Star Trek notebook paper. I'm going to show you how to create an ultra-realistic cabin diorama from scratch.
2: But that's that's just what country music is like.
1: Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome to BETA from Wisconsin Public Radio. Today, movie and television critic Matt Solar seitz joins us to discuss Wes Anderson's movie The French Dispatch.
3: When French people watch The French Dispatch what they're seeing reflected back at them is a kind of an American version of France, like a sort of an idealized, almost mythological version of France.
1: Also, writer and artist Stacy Easton explores the life and career of one of the greatest country singers of all time, Tammy Wynette.
0: One of the great things especially about country music is that it it's done collectively. It's like making quotes over raising barns.
1: But first, Gary Goleman. Gary is a comedian. He's been making audiences laugh for decades. But things have not always been a laugh riot. There have been some tough times along the way. A few years ago, Gary was forced to move back into his mother's home in Boston in an attempt to deal with his depression and anxiety. But he's turned his life around since then. Now Gary revisits his mother's house and his entire youth for the very funny and moving memoir, Misfit, Growing Up Awkward in the 80s. I can relate. I'm still awkward in the 2020s. Gary uses his incredible memory to share some very funny stories about his childhood and his adult life. He reminisces about fumbling in his first big football game, attending Hebrew school, and calling out his nemesis at Jewish summer camp. Gary also shares the insights he learned about battling depression. And Gary being Gary, he also had some fun with the book. For example, he wrote an introduction to the introduction.
2: I have sort of a a compulsion or a ritual of of reading the intro, the preface, or the foreword, and that I, I will not start after it, I will not do anything before it, and I... I've gotten a lot out of reading those. I I read the uh. It was kind of a new foreword or preface to uh, an edition of. The Grapes of Wrath and and reading it was was just as important as as reading the body of the of the book, the actual book and, and was really helpful. And so I've always been insistent on this and I wanted to call out people who don't read the intros and then tell you that they they read the book. So it was it, it was sort of a, a thing where I I was. Teasing people about their not reading the intro and skipping forward and, and cutting corners, but also I wanted to reinforce how important it was in my case to read the introduction.
1: Hmm. I think, of course, it depends on the introduction. But I think in anyone's case, it is important to read the introduction. And I have this kind of I have OCD, so I have this thing where I read something. I insist that I have to read the introduction and, and preface yes. and whatever. And I'm wondering, did you ever consider writing an epilogue and an epilogue to the epilogue? <laughs>
2: I didn't, I didn't consider that, but now I wish I had, because that is a, that is a really great idea. It's sort of the, I I remember early in my life, people would, would write letters to each other and they would put PS and then PSS and PSSSS. And I, and I always found that really, really funny and, and clever. And, and I, I, it's a missed opportunity, but you're, you're a very clever person.
1: Oh, thank you. That means a lot coming from a, such a clever, funny person as yourself. <laughs> thank you. I got to um, get that tattooed on my my, <laughs> my arm. But um you you could still do it for the when the paperback comes out. Oh, that's
2: you know what? That's a great idea because there are there are adjustments made to paperbacks and and I will definitely partake in that. Cool. Excellent. You devote entire
1: chapters to each year of your education all the way from kindergarten to the 12th grade. And I'm just astonished at All the details you remembered. How were you able to remember all these details?
2: It was a combination of things. One thing was that I have this habit over the years and and probably started as soon as I, I became conscious was knowing there were things, events that I would never forget and frequently commenting on it. In, either in my head or, or aloud, I would say oh, I will never forget this. And it was it was either a great thing or, in some cases, a, a negative, sad or traumatic thing. And and I was true to my word. I I never forgot so many of these things. And the the other thing is that I I always admired my dad's ability to tell compelling stories from his youth and. We had heard them over and over again over the over the years, and and knew them, and requested them, and could repeat them, and still sometimes think about them. But I I knew early on that remembering what happened to you as a kid was was going to be a a, a positive thing and and a helpful thing in terms of being a a, a compelling storyteller. I, I just admired storytellers and in general, and and my father in in particular, and I. I knew it was going to be helpful for me to be able to be observant and I I also the third thing I think is that I'm also gifted with a with a pretty unusual memory and that I I'm very good at remembering a lot of the sensory details and and a lot of the a lot of the the word for word dialogue that I encountered growing up
1: Mm, That's amazing. And that's one of the things that makes the book so powerful. So you didn't, you didn't keep notes along the way. You didn't keep a diary or a journal as you were growing up.
2: No, I, I I didn't keep a journal growing up, but I did keep a running sort of tally of events and things that had gone well and things that had gone badly. And I was, I was a storyteller for my family. I would, I, I only saw my dad once a week. So I think a lot of times I had to recount a lot of the things that had happened to me during the, during the week and, and just to anybody who would listen, I was, I was prepared with some, with some stories and my memory was always very, very strong. So I, I guess I did keep a journal. It just happened to be in my, in my mind. Hmm.
1: Yeah. Very well said a journal of your mind. Yeah. You should patent that and start selling, but (laughs) it wouldn't work for anyone else. It wouldn't work for anyone else. When, When you were, when you were in fourth grade, you attended Jewish summer camp for the first time. What was that experience like?
2: it was supposed to be something where i was going to make friends but it turned out to be a pretty lonely experience i made one or two friends with other kids who were who were sort of marginalized and it was it was a it was an interesting phenomenon to sort of be marginalized amongst a group of people who are historically marginalized and it and it i connected with one kid named mark horowitz and we were very close and we sat together on the bus to things and at lunch and Things, but it, it it felt like everybody there was having the time of their life and making new friends and and being embraced. And Mark and I were were sort of observing. And I, I remember talking to him a lot about about science fiction and and uh, fantasy. So it was it was it was really interesting. I I've I've noted over the years that that misfits generally cling to fiction of of fantasy and comic books and things like that. And it, it seems to be a, a sort of a, a dream fulfillment idea.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's the case for me. I consider myself a misfit and an outsider. You had one enemy in Jewish summer camp, a guy <laughs> you called Kapler. Can you tell yeah. us about him?
2: Yes, he was my enemy because he was no more athletic than me or, or really charming or interesting. It, than me he was just a regular kid but he had enormous confidence and he would he made the softball team and he made the the he starred in the in the camp play and he won the sandcastle building contest and I just I could not understand why this kid who really did not have so much more going for him than I did was was so confident and I was so shy and sad and and felt felt anxious all the time and and so I I just I just felt although he had no idea that that I was resenting him I had built up so much resentment because I was I was losing all these things to this kid who I couldn't figure out why he felt so good about himself when I felt so lousy about myself
1: well you had this great opportunity to to publicly display your resentment um during the experience the day you guys went to a zip line in the woods can you tell us that story
2: oh yes yes i I didn't go on the zip line because I was too afraid and and Kepler, of course, was the first to go on. He was so energetic and and was not afraid. he believed in himself. He went on there and he zipped down and he came down and he returned a a hero, and everybody was so impressed by him and they surrounded him and they said, "What was it like?" And did you have a good time? And, and I'll never forget what he said. And I knew at the moment I said, I'll never forget him saying this. He said, well, you learn so much about yourself. And, and he was nine or 10 years old. And I, I just remember thinking, well, that is the phoniest he copied that, he heard that on a commercial for Outward Bound or from an astronaut <laughs> or something. And he decided to say this and everybody oohed and aahed. And And I said to him, I said, Kapler, why do you have to be so preachy? You sound like a commercial. And he was not fazed by by being called out by that. He didn't he didn't really care. And and people looked at me like I was an ogre and a jerk. And it just it blew up in my face, but I I couldn't resist. I was so turned off by his his bravado and his and his his false confidence. Well, maybe it wasn't false, but also his pretentiousness, I guess.
1: Yeah, that's, that's 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 incredible. That's one of my favorite stories in, in Misfit. And I have lots oh, of favorite you. stories in there. Well, thank you. Besides writing about your childhood, you also write some very powerful passages about your battle with depression in 2017. And of course, you explored these. You were very honest about these in your great Netflix special, The Great Depression. Why did you decide to include these passages?
2: I think it was important to see... And understand why a person at 46 years old at the at the time was scrutinizing and and analyzing this time period of his life and what, what happened in 2017 was after being being treated in the in the hospital I was very concerned about my ability to continue to earn a, a living because I was not I was not able to perform as a, as a comedian and so I moved back to my mother's house where i had grown up and and actually into the into the bed that i grew up in and a, a lot of people would say that the lowest point would be being in the psych ward but for me it was actually moving back into my mother's house it was it was really a stark contrast to my life in in manhattan so i moved back there and i was i was seeing a lot of the places that I had grown up with, experiencing a lot of the feelings I had grown up with. Also, I was intersecting with a lot of the people I had grown up with because a lot of the people were still living in in that neighborhood. Either they had bought their parents' house or they had moved nearby. So it was just this sort of, I guess, hurricane of nostalgia and reminiscing. And it it brought back a lot of the things that that I feared. But was now overcoming. And, and a, a lot of my trauma and, and a lot of my worldview had been developed when I was young. So I, I, I felt early on it, it needed to be clear why this 46 year old man was spending so much time analyzing kindergarten through 12th grade. And so I thought this was a, a, a really good device to, to make sense of that. Mm
1: -hmm. very well said and you mentioned going back in time and that brings me to my next question I, i especially like the passage about your time
2: travel fantasy and i'd like to have you read this one paragraph there's long been a delusion involved in my depression that makes me fantasize about time travel i daydream that i can go back in time and consciously enjoy the times when i felt better and avoid all the pitfalls and missteps that i believe have doomed me to the state of mind i am trapped in
1: that's a very powerful paragraph and i wonder i wonder does that kind of tie in because i have this feeling I, I have, I struggle with depression a lot. And I have this problem with being in the moment, because I'm yeah. always regretting the past and, and dreading the future. Is that kind of what you're talking about with the time travel fantasy?
2: Yes, I, absolutely. And I'm sorry, you have to deal with this. It's it's so painful. But I, I find that a, a lot of times, especially when I'm in the thick of a, a depressive episode, I, I go back over my life with a with a red pen and, and try to try to edit it and think, well, if I had made this decision or if this person hadn't, hadn't betrayed me, or if I had, if I had just stuck it out with this thing, I would have been making this different choice. And it's just, it's, it's something that is, is really, I don't know that it's a, an official symptom of depression, but it, is a, a symptom of my depression and a lot of depression where you just you have so much guilt and regret and and it hijacks your brain with with ruminations and this overall malaise of, of regret and and guilt and and I found that it was soothing sometimes to to spend time in that area of, of nostalgia and and thinking back on things and 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 yet it, it was not it was not therapeutic it was not a helpful time in my life
1: mm. yeah well i'm sorry you had to go through that and thank you for your oh, empathy you on my behalf yeah your your depression has been in remission for 6 years what have these last 6 years been like for you
2: they've been easier than any other 6 year period in my life it's just you you know from d- depression that one of the one of the more insidious aspects of it is it just makes day to day life much harder it's harder to walk upstairs it's harder to get out of bed it's harder to make breakfast it's harder it's harder to uh keep commitments to to meet people and be on time for things it's just that's one of the hardest things to accept about depression is that these things that you you loved are are no longer bringing you you pleasure or or comfort
1: Mm -hmm. are you worried
2: about your depression returning i don't give it too much too much energy in, in terms of the likelihood. My, my psychiatrist said it becomes ever more unlikely that you'll have a relapse the further you get away from your last episode. And, and six years is a really long time. So I feel like my recovery is durable and I have a lot of rituals and there are a lot of fail safes that I've, I've sort of installed over the years to keep me from falling too low, but I'm I'm one of the failsafes is that I'm I'm ever vigilant for any signs of re- reduction in my in my mood.
1: Gary Gallman, thank you very much for joining us today. Congratulations on Misfit, Growing Up Awkward in the Eighties. It's a very funny and very poignant
2: book. Oh, Doug, it was such a delight talking to you, and and thanks so much. And I I hope we get to intersect in person in the future.
1: That was Gary Gallman. He's the author of the memoir, Misfit, Growing Up Awkward in the 80s. Find out more about Gary and Misfit at wpr.org slash beta.
3: He always loved The New Yorker from the time he was in high school. And he's, and he, I think he got a subscription in college and he has every issue of The New Yorker that he ever received uh, in leather bound editions in his uh, New York offices.
1: Coming up. Critic Matt Solar Seitz joins us to talk about Wes Anderson's homage to the New Yorker, the French Dispatch. We'll try to make it sound like we did it on purpose. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. I think it's safe to say that one of the most unique filmmakers working today is Wes Anderson. He's the writer and director of 11 feature films and several more short films. All of them feature his diorama-esque style, charming music, and unforgettable characters. One of our favourite movie and TV critics here at Beta is Matt Solar Sites. Matt was one of the first critics to discover Wes's talent back when they were both in Texas. And he's put together companion books for several of Wes's films. He joins us now to talk about his book on Wes's New Yorker homage, The French Dispatch. The book features sumptuous colour photos throughout and Matt's beautiful prose. I think Matt has put almost as much work into this book as Wes puts into his enchanting, one-of-a-kind films. We talked to Matt about how Wes puts his films together, their friendship, and why Wes wanted to do a movie about The New Yorker.
3: I've been friends with Wes for, God, over 30 years now. And uh, I was a young critic in Dallas when he was making his short film, Bottle Rocket. and And he told me I was the first person ever to review a movie of his. And uh, I've gotten to watch him evolve over that span of time, professionally and personally. But I do know that he always loved The New Yorker from the time he was in high school. And he I think he got his subscription in college, and he has every issue of The New Yorker that he ever received uh, in leather-bound editions in his uh, New York offices. So he was always interested in The New Yorker, but he didn't start to get interested in the history of The New Yorker until... I told him about this book by a New Yorker contributor called Joseph Mitchell. The title was Up in the Old Hotel, and this was published in the 90s, and it was kind of this incredible breakout thing that introduced the writing of Mitchell to a, a wide audience that didn't even know his name. And that was what got him into the history of The New Yorker, and I think his research into the history of The New Yorker and all the books and articles that have been written about The New Yorker and contributors and editors of The New Yorker, I think that's what... Ultimately led to the French dispatch.
1: Mm-hmm. And Joseph Mitchell's work is great. I, I love his work. I think I've read almost everything he's written, and he's just like, he's really a great writer.
3: Well, the character of Herb, Herb Saint Sazerac, who's the 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 Owen Wilson character, the American Abroad, is kind of a a model on a, a few New Yorker writers, but he's mostly Mitchell. And Mitchell was what was called a pure reporter, which is a concept that I always admired and I've had very few chances to emulate. And a pure reporter is somebody who doesn't get assigned a story and isn't driven by the news cycle, but instead will simply just go about the world looking for interesting things to write about.
0: Like every living city, Ennui supports a menagerie of vermin and scavengers.
3: The rats, which colonized its subterranean railroad. The cats, which colonized its slanty rooftops, the Anguillette, which colonized its shallow drainage canals. Joseph Mitchell did those kinds of stories, like he did an entire feature about the the rat problem on the waterfront, uh, and he did a story about a West Village eccentric named Joe Gould, which uh, was the subject of a piece called Joe Gould's Secret. And then you've also got um, James Baldwin, uh, who's kind of represented by the Jeffrey Wright character in the third. "Quote unquote" feature article segment of the film, and uh, the one with the kidnapping of the of the chef played by Stephen Park, and uh, there's a lot of other uh, New Yorker writers who are represented in there as well. And it's an, it's an amalgam. I mean, it's never just one person. It's like he's putting bits and pieces of two or three different people together, usually.
1: Mm-hmm. Very well said. Wes was really hell bent on making a movie in France for his entire career. Why?
3: From a very early age, he was obsessed with all things French. And I remember when I saw Bottle Rocket, the short film, for the first time, one of the things that jumped out at me was he had a shot for shot homage to a scene in The 400 Blows, the Truffaut's debut film. And the movie, The Bottle Rocket, the short, was in black and white, 16 millimeter. And uh, the cutting and the compositions and the whole flavor of it with the jazz music was very French new wave. And I remember thinking, oh my God, he made Dallas, which among other things, is not known for its architecturally dazzling qualities, Uh, look like uh, it could be France in the 50s. I've never seen Dallas look cooler on film than it did in that short. And that was that was the French influence. You know, he's loved uh, Paris uh, ever since he visited it. He loves France. He's traveled around France uh, via rail a lot. And he's he's kind of a citizen of the world now. He rarely spends more than six months in one place.
1: Would you consider The French Dispatch a French film?
3: No, I wouldn't. In the same way that I wouldn't consider Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon to be an American film or a Chinese film. It's, it's a kind of a hybrid, if that makes any sense. Like, uh, you know, the French, uh, as far as I understand, at least respect, and in many cases have embraced the French dispatch. And Olivia Picell, who is uh, one of the producers of the film, holds dual French and American citizenship. And she was talking to me about how When French people watch the French Dispatch, what they're seeing reflected back at them is a kind of an American version of France, like a sort of an idealized, almost mythological version of France. And even though it's not true, they appreciate it, probably in the same way that Americans appreciated the version of the American West that the Italian filmmaker Sergio Leone presented to them in his spaghetti Westerns. Like we looked at it, we knew that this was not not anything like what the American West was, actually was. It was some, almost more like something out of science fiction. It was just deranged. And yet, we, we understood the archetypes, and we liked the excitement. We liked the interest. We were flattered by the attention, and I think that's probably what she was getting at.
1: hmm yeah. French filmmaker Nicolas Sada says that West views the world as one huge dysfunctional family and that all of his movies, in one way or another, are above family. Is that true of The French Dispatch?
3: I think, it's a, I think it's absolutely true of the French Dispatch, and it's true of all of his movies to greater or lesser degrees. And the French Dispatch family is a family of writers, editors, fact-checkers, and other people who work at the magazine. And it's about the idea of creating a family sort of Frankensteining together this patchwork new family in lieu of or in place of the one that you were born into. Arthur Howitzer, Jr., born in North Kansas, 10 miles from the geographical center of the United States. Mother died when he was five. Son of a newspaper publisher, founder of this magazine. The French Dispatch, previously known as Picnic. A largely unread Sunday supplement to the Liberty, Kansas Evening Sun. It began as a holiday. Is that true? Sort of. That's been a theme of his uh, really uh, since Rushmore, where, you know, the theater is kind of the, the, the idealized family that the hero really needs. But more so in the Royal Tenenbaums, which is, uh, you know, about struggling to reconcile the family you're born into and the family that you really would like to have and or be a part of. And then the Life Aquatic, it's all the, all the guys on the boat. And, uh, you know, he does sort of juxtapose those two things, the blood family and the uh, created family.
1: Hmm. Interesting. I want to ask you about Wes's writing process. Does he come to these movies with the story all set?
3: No, not at all. And that's another thing that's been really almost revelatory for me. Wes has always been known as being a controlling, precise, methodical filmmaker. And that is very, very true when it comes to the production part of it and the post-production part of it. But the writing part of it is as open and intuitive as as anybody's. What he will have is he doesn't come in with the entire story and all the characters all mapped out in his brain. He needs other people to create the story with him. And he does the story conference thing where it'll, it'll be himself and uh, a kind of a rotating group of collaborators. There might be one person, there might be two, there might be three people in the room with him. But they will start with an idea for a scene or a story or a sequence, and then they will work their way through it, and then they will say, well, what happens next? What are you writing? Our manifesto. Then you should study our resolutions. Or anyway, will you proofread it? My parents think you're a good writer. Give it to me. It's a little damp.
0: Physically or metaphorically?
1: Both, based on the cover and the first four sentences. Don't criticize my manifesto. Oh, you don't want remarks? I don't need remarks, do
0: I? I only asked you to proofread it because I thought you'd be even more impressed by how good it already is. Let's start with the typos.
3: When he works on the story, uh, he works with people like uh, Jason Schwartzman, who's also obviously one of his major actors, and uh, Hugo Guinness, who collaborated on the story for the French Dispatch. And Roman Coppola, who's his second unit director, co-producer, and very close friend for a long time. Schwartzman described it to me as being almost like a detective story. And Wes will be like Columbo. He'll be asking questions of people. And they're never leading questions. They're always very open questions like, what you know, where does he go after that? What is she thinking as she says this? Things, things like that.
1: Right. And does Wes Wes ever channel his inner Peter Falk? He mentioned Columbo and like, you know, he starts to leave and then turns around and says, just one more thing. I wonder if he ever does that. (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) Yeah. So there are three main stories or articles and one talk of the town-like prologue. If we cut these into four short films and said you could only watch one of them, which would it be and why?
3: Oh my gosh, that's a tough one. Well, I will say that the... The sequence with the student protesters and uh, the, uh, the French dispatch writer who's trying to sort of make sense of them for an American audience, that's the one that's become the hardest for me to watch. And in fact, uh, I've watched the film probably eight or nine or ten times. I don't even remember how many times. But towards the end, I got to the point where I started to skip the last five minutes of that one because it was too painful for me.
1: His parents will receive a telephone call at midnight, dressed briskly, mechanically, and hold hands in the silent taxi as they go to identify the body of their cold son. His likeness, mass-produced and shrink-wrap packaged, will be sold like bubblegum to the hero-inspired, who hope to see themselves like this: the touching narcissism of
3: the young. I think that's probably altogether the most powerful one for me. Not the one, not I I, I hesitate to call it my favorite because it's emotionally a lot. But I like, I like all three of the feature stories equally and for different reasons. I think the, the Benicio del Toro one where he plays the painter is a, a really rich exploration of the creative process and the relationship between money and art. It's not for sale. Yes, it is.
1: No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. It is. Yes, it is. All artists sell all their work. It's what makes you an artist. It's selling it. If you don't wish to sell it, don't paint it. Question is, what's your price? Fifty cigarettes. Actually, make it seventy-five.
3: And I think the final one with Jeffrey Wright uh, as the reporter trying to profile the personal chef of the police chief of ennui, played by Stephen Park, is a is a great just caper comedy, and it's also a really nice meditation on what it means to be a foreigner or an immigrant or a stranger in a strange land and that's kind of what both of those guys are and there's a a one that moment at the end where the two of them speak to each other and kind of acknowledge each other's fundamental connectedness is i think one of the most touching scenes in any of his films i'm a foreigner you know
1: the city's full of us isn't it i'm one myself
0: seeking something missing missing something left behind
3: maybe with good luck we'll find what eluded us in the places we once called home and also one that i think says a lot about wes who started traveling abroad when he was promoting the royal tenenbaums and never entirely came back to america
1: Wes is also known for his repertoire of actors. That troupe seems to grow with every movie he makes. Is this his biggest ensemble to date? And and what new faces do you think will become regulars?
3: In terms of the sheer number of interesting faces on screen, if this is not the biggest one, it's certainly up there. And I think uh, he continues to add people that he's seen in other things that's that, that that's how a new face usually shows up in the Wes Anderson film is he goes to the theater and he sees an actor he likes or he goes to the movies or he watches a tv show and he sees some actor he likes and then he you know ends up working with him sometimes he writes something for them like Jeffrey Wright has become a pretty solid regular part of his ensemble now and uh Wright is somebody that uh, Wes saw on Broadway like 20 years ago and said I want to work with that guy but uh, it wasn't until the French Dispatch that he sort of gave him a part that was really written for him.
1: Do students of the table dream in flavors?
3: That was the first of the
1: questions a reporter for this magazine had diligently prepared in advance of his encounter with Lieutenant Nescafier, ranking chef at district headquarters on the narrow river peninsula known as the Rongier d'Angle. All such queries were to remain unanswered in the course of that eventful evening. Shall I carry on?
3: Like it was, it was just based on his understanding of of what Jeffrey Wright was an absolute master at, which was kind of narrating the world with that wonderful mellifluous voice that he has.
2: One
1: of the most fascinating sections of your book is when you turn it over to Wes's longtime composer Alexandre Desplat. His, his music ties the anthology together so beautifully, but each section is completely unique in terms of tone. What did you learn about Desplat's approach and what can you share with us?
3: Well, one of the things that I, I really love about the, those two working together is that it really is a collaboration. And a lot of times, Wes will approach Alexandre and say, I have a scene where this happens, and the composer will immediately begin working on something and will send it to him. And, and a, kind of in a rough form. And, and the rough form might inspire Wes in the actual writing of the scene. And it will continue that way all the way through production. And and the, the score and the movie itself evolve organically more or less at the same time. That's not how things are usually done. Usually you make the film, you finish the film, you have a bunch of temporary music in there when you're editing, and then you strip it all out and somebody puts the original music in. And this this really is more like a, a collaboration between a director and a writer or a director and an actor, where it starts at the beginning and it continues all the way through.
1: Hmm. Matt Solar thank you for joining us today. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you. Congratulations on The French Dispatch. It's a beautiful looking and beautifully written book.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Matt Solar is the author of The French Dispatch. Find out more about Matt and Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch at wpr.org slash beta.
0: She had tumultuous personal relationships outside of her marriages. I think the only place that she was in control was in the studio.
1: Coming up, writer Stacey Easton on the life and career of country music superstar Tammy Wynette. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio.
2: I've never seen the inside
3: of a bar room or listen to a jukebox all night long.
1: Tammy Wynette was known as the first lady of country music from the 1950s to the 1980s. Writer and artist Stacey Easton knows more about Tammy than we'll ever know. They are the author of Why Tammy Wynette Matters. Stacy explains how Tammy's feminine persona matched the themes of her songs, devotion, romantic redemption, and the heartbreak of loneliness. And they also say that although Tammy came across as glamorous in her public performances, things were different behind the scenes. Stacy says that Tammy faced a lot of troubles offstage.
0: I think that she had an enormous amount of difficulty with her medical situation towards the end of her life. She had tumultuous personal relationships outside of her marriages. I think the only place that she was in control was in the studio and the ability to do that and the kidnapping and like, was she kidnapped? It wasn't she kidnapped and having her house burned down and being chased by George Jones with a gun and being forced into psychiatric care by her first husband and just unrelentingly chaotic in most senses of the word.
1: Tammy's first solo country number one song was I Don't Want to Play House, which was released in 1967. What's your take on this song?
0: I, I love that she started a career with a refusal, a negative, which is fantastic. And it's the originating of, of all the rest of her great themes, right? This incredibly sad song. It's It's a song about interiority, about having a relationship with her kids and having that relationship strained.
2: I don't wanna play house. I know it can be fun. I've watched mommy and daddy.
0: And it has a, a, a wonderful performance with that difficult little hitch at the end. She had a deep career and a complex career but it's good to it's good to have your
1: themes clear and precise in the outset. Hmm, yeah. Another one of Tammy's early hits was Your Good Girl's Gonna Go Bad, and you say that this song has a more complex sexual subtext than it appears to on the surface. Can you tell us a bit about this subtext?
0: Well, it's the, the, the line, you're swinging a swinger, right? It's such a great line, a willingness to... Commit to a pleasure inside the house that had been previously exterior to the house.
3: Because your good girls are gonna go bad.
2: I'm gonna be the and swinger you've ever had. If you like 'em painted up, powdered up, then you ought to be Because your good girls are gonna go bad.
0: There's always been this sort of inside-outside dualism in country music between, like, the home front and the honky-tonk, where it was very careful not to cross stream, so to speak. And I love the sort of unrelenting desire for Renette to keep... Renette's character in the song to keep everything. She'll let the honky-tonk inside. She'll let all of the kind of uh, amoral pleasure-seeking that occurs within a honky-tonk to happen in her space including, I think, hinted with that swinging a swinger
1: line, perhaps stepping outside of marriage. Mm-hmm. The legendary country music producer Billy Sherrill signed Tammy Wynette to Epic Records in the late 60s, and he co-wrote many of her hits. How important was Sherrill to Wynette's success?
0: I think you always have to be careful with questions like this because it always assumes that especially female performers function as avatars or puppets, and I don't ever Mm -hmm. think that's the case. I think that one of the great things, especially about country music, is that it's done collectively. It's like making quilts or raising barns, right? And so to have these two people work together to produce the best they could possibly do, that kind of excellence, which requires a mutuality and an intimacy I always think of Cheryl as the person that she stayed with the longest and she trusted the most, more than any domestic partner, more than any business associate, with the possible exception of some of her friends. Like, we're always caught up in this romantic idea of a singular genius, and especially this idea of a singular male genius. It also sort of powerful for me in some moments to think about Wynette making Cheryl and not the other way around that Wynette's skills as a performer and an interpreter, I think one of the great interpreters of American Song gave Cheryl power that maybe he wouldn't have had in other
1: productions or other spaces. Mm. Yeah, very well said. Speaking of uh, interpreter, uh, it's interesting that you say that Tammy is one of the great interpretive singers in American popular music and that she is as good in her way and in her genre as Sarah Vaughan. That's very high praise. Why do you think that's the case? I
0: think about relationship, for example, like Stand By Your Man, which she, of course, made her own and made a legendary, and that small little hink you hear in her voice where she steals herself to do that kind of stand, to stand by your man. Or i thinking about my favorite of Burnett songs, Apartment Number 9, where the desolation of that domestic space is held entirely through her, her story, or I'm thinking about how she trades lines as golden ring with George Jones and how that becomes a technical exercise in matching tone to do the emotional work for the audience. And I think that that's also one of the things that interpretive singing is, taking a text and, and translating or elucidating its nuance for a larger audience. And I think that Wynette does that very well.
1: Mm, yeah, very good point. Yeah, very very good point. Billy Sherrill and Tammy Wynette co-wrote Stand By Your Man in 1968, supposedly in 20 minutes. It was a big hit, but also her most controversial song. How did people react to it?
0: It was nitroglycerin for the cultural wars, and it was used, I think, interpreted badly often, but I think also Wynette, in a very complex way, allowed for its misinterpretation. I think as a, as a queer critic or as a critic who doesn't put a lot of, of stock into kind of heteronormative mainstream relationships, I want the song to be more ambivalent than it is, and I could make an argument that it's ambivalent, but I also think that for especially working-class women who didn't have their stories told and didn't have the values told, that ambition to have a single partner... For all for their entire lives was validated. And I think that's important. However, I also think that it was a song that was profoundly reactionary, and that Wynnette didn't have any problem and also actively encouraged that kind of reactionary moment until much later, where she made an argument that people misinterpreted it. But also, like there's some text that just becomes sort of so culturally monolithic and so huge they become the culture instead of the performer. And I think that's also what happened with Annette at the end of it. In
1: 1992, Hillary Clinton mentioned Tammy and the hit song, Stand By Your Man, during her husband Bill Clinton's first presidential campaign when there were rumors of him having an affair.
3: You know, I'm not sitting here as some little woman standing by my man like Tammy Wynette.
1: She put a foot in it, right? And she put
0: a foot in it in such a way that I think that she was actively disrespectful to Annette. And I think double down on this idea of Hillary being distant from, from working class voices. I had enough money that they were both roughly in the same tax bracket at that point. But I always think about where Hillary must have heard that song. And Hillary did work in the 70s in the Deep South on child poverty. And she spent so much time in Arkansas, right? So she didn't... She had, must have had some contacts for the South. And that she did that, I think, just suggests the contempt that she had for working people.
1: How did Tammy react to Hillary's comment?
0: She was really hurt. And this is actually a really funny story. She, she, I think she made some public comments, and then Hillary realized how badly she had messed up and desperately tried to get Wynette to have a meeting, and a public meeting. And Wynette wouldn't meet her publicly. And eventually, Burt Reynolds (laughs) intervened, because she had a long-standing relationship with Burt Reynolds, a a romantic relationship that turned into a a friendship. And so Burt Reynolds worked as the uh,
1: intercessor between Wynette and Clinton. In 1991, Tammy collaborated with the British band, the KLF. For a music video called Justified and ancient stand by the jams it was an international hit they
3: me in they said, stand by the jams. but if you don't like what they're going to do
1: what did you make of it the first time you saw and heard it it was
0: amazing. I think it was maybe, it wasn't my first encounter with Ornette, but it, it was my first encounter with KOF. And that kind of very british we are being very serious, but we are also doing this sort of arts and crafts camp of it. And this tone where you're never exactly sure who's making the joke at whose expense. And the video is amazing. I think everybody should just immediately watch the video because it's just there are costumes and there are gold lamé and there's dancing and there's a tryron that goes across uh that explains to everybody who who don't know who tammy wynnette is who tammy wynnette is and it's this argument for wynnette's genius but it also may be making fun of wynnette it's bizarre and fantastic
1: you say that tammy wynnette's 1966 song apartment number nine is the saddest song ever written? What makes it the saddest song ever written?
0: The entire landscape of the song is imbued with this kind of melancholy about failure and so it's it's one of those where the breakdown of the relationship just infests everything in the rest of the song and there's this line in it where she says Loneliness
3: survives with you arms around me
0: And the sun will never shine In apartment number nine I love, in that way that, you know, you always want to wallow in sadness, that when he leaves, it's like, ain't no sunshine, right? That the material culture of the space becomes stained with a failure of a relationship and this failure and this profound melancholy. And so nothing is is pure anymore. And the, and the minute that a love goes, means that everything goes. And Wynette's genius, I think, and she does this in I Don't Want to Play House in a Two-Story House and a few other places, where the home life becomes li- almost literally animated, uh, the inclusion or exclusion of of a relationship that is functioning, and so the idea that a dysfunctional relationship can corrupt an entire physical space and how she sings about the emotional isolation of that, of those failures just destroys me every time I hear it.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's 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 a really good analysis of the the song. One question I w- want to ask you one more question, if you don't mind. In the very last paragraph of your book, you you say that as a trans person, I don't want to give Wynette over to the transphobes and the homophobes. That sentence really struck me. Can you you tell us a bit about that?
0: Yeah, I think there are queer ways of looking at the world. I think that there are trans ways of looking at the world. I think that there are ways of looking at the world that prioritize an idea that gender is performative and that gender is something that you, as Tammy Wynette says, in womanhood, step into or step out of. I think with the way the discourse is going right now and in a way that doesn't make me feel really scared and really sad, that the assumption is that gender is something that queer folk or trans folks do. The only queer folk and trans folks perform gender and as if we can police or destroy how queer folks and trans folks perform gender, then gender will never be performed again. And I think you have to look very carefully, Winnette, and look at this and say, like, no, say that that they are performing gender as much as we are. The gender is always a something that is profoundly acted within a culture. The gender is always something that is that is played with or messed with or adhered to. And I think that nothing is natural and everything is acted in, And those actings have physical as well as cultural and emotional consequences.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Stacey Easton, thank you very much for joining us. Congratulations on Why Tammy Oynette Matters. It's a fascinating book. Thank you so much. Stacy Easton is the author of Why Tammy Wynette Matters. Find out more about Stacy and Tammy at wpr.org slash beta. Well, that does it for this edition of Beta. Thanks to our guests, Gary Goleman, Matt Zoller-Seitz, and Stacy Easton. What you're gleaning from these interviews is groundbreaking. Beta is available to follow on Spotify or wherever you catch your favorite pods. Don't forget to offer a rating or to share with new alphas. And you can keep up with us during the week online at wpr.org beta.
2: Even for the internet, it's pretty shocking.
1: Beta is a production of Wisconsin Public Radio and Red Meat Productions. Fantastic. Our music and technical director is Steve Gotcher. Just give him a chance. He's very
0: intelligent.
1: Our executive producer, and showrunner, is Adam Friedrich. His fiscal management system was convoluted but functional. And thanks to you, our alphas. More Beta comes your way next week. Until then, I'm Doug Gordon. The uncontested crackerjack of
3: grammatical expertise.